My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, September 6th, 2011. Deep into the research, deep, deep, deep in my preparation for um, Friday night in Elk River, Minnesota, right across the street from the Crossing Church. Gotta tell you, um, absolutely convinced that uh, with Eric Dykstra, we're dealing with somebody who really behaves more like a cult leader than a pastor. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and... Uh, one of the uh, the places it's coming from are these young, uh, seeker-driven, angry, punkster-type pastors. And I got to tell you, um, the more I delve into this, the more uh, more of the onion that I peel back, the more convinced I am that uh, these guys. I mean, it, it's like um, it's like a cult movement within uh, the church, and uh, it's it's really, really, actually frightening and disconcerting all at the same time the deeper I go into this. And I, it's kind of hard to um, shock me is, is probably the best way of putting it. Uh, but the deeper I go into this thing, the more shocked I am by what I'm hearing and what I'm seeing. And so uh, since I'm like deep into the middle of my preparation and in fact spent most of the weekend uh, really, really digging deep in preparation for my uh, my lecture on Friday night, um, what I'm going to do today is, uh, you know, similar to what I did uh, a week ago Friday in the Anatomy of Deceit episode of Fighting for the Faith, and that is I'm going to focus the, the entire program program on a particular sermon by Eric Dykstra. The, the reason being is this, is that uh, when I give my uh, lecture on Friday night, I want the people of Elk River to be able to have 
a a, a deep resource of uh, places that you know of, of, of at least a pile that they can go to. That will really peel this back for them so that they can see the danger that exists in Eric Dykstra. And and danger is the right way of putting it. And um, so today um, I'm going to be reviewing another one of Eric Dykstra's uh, um, Code of the Samurai uh, sermons. And this one is called Contribution. So it's uh, Code of the Samurai Contribution. That's the name of the sermon. But before I do that, I've I've got to uh, uh, play my Eric Dykstra update music. So it's a lot. 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 Like like. Pastor and servant. 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 Anyway, you got the point. Well, I tell you, that's that's not um, that's not out of bounds. That's actually a correct description there of um, of Eric Dykstra and, and Kelly, his uh, wife, who uh, ought not to be preaching and teaching there at the um, <clears throat> Crossing Church because the Bible forbids that. But anyway, uh, so the the name of the sermon series is Code of the Samurai. This one's entitled Contribution, and I want you to pay attention to what he does with the gospel in this. Um, The best way I can put it is that this sermon is all about pushing and manipulating and pressing and really, really digging in hard to get the people of the Crossing Church to sign a two-year commitment to give above and beyond, uh, to really sacrifice financially for that particular congregation. And I, I at the end of the sermon, near the end of the sermon, you're actually going to hear Eric Dykstra basically make the claim that he knows that God is telling some of the people there to cash out their 401ks and give it to the Crossing Church. No kidding. No kidding. I mean, it, it, I mean, what you're going to hear is a false gospel. What you're going to hear is absolute and utter manipulation. And by the way, one of the things that uh, I'm going to be talking about at the uh, at the event uh, called Double Crossed by the Crossing Church. It is 6:30 p.m. Elk River, Minnesota, at Elk River High School, right across the street from the Crossing Church. And I'm going to be talking about uh, the uh, basically the major warning signs that you're part of a cult. Okay, I'm going to talk about the warning signs that you're part of a cult. And I didn't, I did not, I absolutely did not construct this list. This list was constructed by a group that's been in existence since 1993, and uh, this is a group that is dedicated to fighting against coercive tactics. And you know, they they deal with mind science cults. Uh, they've been dealing with people who've been caught up in things like Scientology and other things like that. And they've actually put together a list on their own website. and th- And they're from Ignacio, Colorado, by the way. 
And uh, yeah, But I'm not going to give all of the, the list here today on Fighting for the Faith. But they're from Ignacio, Colorado, and they've never heard of Eric Dykstra. These are not former members of the Crossing Church who are haters, who who are mean and just trying to assassinate the character of a good man of God who's received a vision from God. No, 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 no. These are people who've been... Well, they've they've been they've been working against basically mental control cults and you know and cult leaders since 1993. And one of the one of the um, let me let me let me read to you um, two of the characteristics of a cult. Okay, um, you, you may be part of a cult um, if if these if any of these two signs are present, but there's more. There's far more than just two. Um, so uh, according to this group that is really specializes in cults and religious cults, a cult has only two basic purposes, only two, recruiting new members and fundraising. Uh, yeah, altruistic movements, established uh, religions and other honorable groups also recruit and they fundraise. However, these actions are incidental to an honorable group's main purpose of improving the lives of its members and of humankind in general. Destructive cults may claim to make social contributions, but in actuality, such claims are superficial and only serve as gestures or fronts for recruiting and fundraising. A, a cult's real goal is to increase the prestige and often the wealth of the leader. Okay, so that's so uh, cults. Uh, exi- you know, their their primary two focuses are recruiting and fundraising. Okay, and uh, I, I'll be demonstrating how this uh, fits uh, the Crossing Church to the T. But the other thing is, uh, um, listen to this one. Another one of the uh, primary uh, warning signs of a cult: a destructive cult appears to be innovative and exclusive. The leader claims to be breaking with tradition, offering something novel, and instituting the only viable system for change that will si- solve life's problems or the world's ills. But these claims are empty and only used to recruit members who are then surreptitiously, surreptitiously subjected to control to inhibit their ability to examine the actual validity of the claims of the leader as and the cult. So um, th- th- those are just two. Those are just two. And there's uh, far more. But anyway, so we're going to be listening to this sermon by Eric Dykstra. In, in, it's entitled The Code of the Samurai. And uh, this one's called Contribution. And I think this absolutely fits under the category of of well, the cults really only have two purposes: get new members. You got to get new members. Constantly got to get new members. Oh, and fundraising. It costs a lot of money. So um, anyway, so uh, with that, we're going to dive into our sermon review and our program proper today. Here is uh, Eric Dykstra from his sermon uh, entitled "Code of the Samurai." This one's called "Contribution." Here we go. What's up, Crossing Church? Welcome to the Code of the Samurai. Welcome to the second week of Code of the Samurai. I had to do a special shout out because we have three other campuses I got to talk to just for a minute. So for those of you watching this in Big Lake and Princeton and Zimmerman, what's up guys? And then I have to do a special shout out. I heard that it's, some of you like are going to watch this on camera this week because you heard that it snowed on Sunday and so you're not going to come to church tomorrow and so you're going to end up watching this later on in the week because you're a wiener and you won't get out of your driveway. (laughs) So for those of you that end up watching this on camera because you were too scared to drive to church, hey, thanks for watching the talk. (laughs) We did. You should give them a round of applause. That's good stuff. Hey, uh, all right, we are on the second week of Code of the Samurai. Uh, we're basically, here's Code of the Samurai. The whole concept is this. 
that, that, that there was this group of elite warriors in Japan, and they had this code that they lived by. And if we would live by that same code, we'd actually live like Jesus. That's the, that's the whole concept. The, the, same, the, 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 the version of the code they lived by, if we could pull that off, we'd actually look like Jesus and act like Jesus and smell like Jesus and talk like Jesus and walk like Jesus and look like Jesus. So, uh, we, we, so, we start. so apparently um, the code of the samurai, uh, you know, if you follow that code, you'll look just like Jesus. Yeah, this is a weird religion. I've never heard of this one before. So I can achieve the unthinkable. Most people don't achieve the unthinkable. They can't even achieve the thinkable. Seriously, so many people walking around going, that's impossible, man, it's impossible. We can never do that, that's impossible. But my God is not the God of the impossible. My God's always the God of the possible. He can take it. Uh, is the is the job of the Christian church, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Great Commission, I'm not familiar with the uh, we need to do the impossible. We were told to go and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and make disciples of all nations. Uh, where's the big doctrinal sections of the Bible that talk about achieving the impossible? Uh, that somehow the big the big demon that uh, Christianity exists to slay and conquer is the mediocrity uh, don't even achieve the possible demon um yeah I, I, this is a weird religion i'm not familiar with this one so many people walking around going that's impossible man it's impossible we can never do that that's impossible but my god's not the god of the impossible my god's always the god of the possible he can take the impossible and make it possible and when you walk with christ and and follow jesus when you actually audaciously commit I just need to say this straight up. Those of you that end up with a, wimp, a, a wimpy life that never accomplish anything and then you're going to die, it's because you never committed to anything in your life. You got a crappy marriage because you're not committed to it. You got a crappy job because you're not really committed to it. You got a crappy life because you're not really committed to it. And as long as you never audaciously commit, you'll always be average and ordinary. So the big uh, problem that Christianity solves is solving that big average ordinary life problem. Hmm. By the way, um, the the reason why people have marriages that are struggling, the people, the re one of the reasons why people have problems at work is well because we're all sinners. We're all sinners, and uh, and so um, yeah, it's well, this is one of the consequences of sin. So I I just you know I find myself to be in a position of like not really believing Eric Dykstra that he somehow has found in the Bible the solution that solves all of these, well, just below average or average life problems, as, as if that's the big problem in life that Christianity comes to solve this side of Christ's return, by the way. Something like, for real, legit, like I'm going to off the hook, audaciously commit, you could accomplish the unbelievable. See, because that's, that, that's what God calls us to. He never calls you an ordinary average life. He called you to something so much more than this. He's got high hopes for your life. And if you're living less than, it's probably because someplace along the way, you stopped making commitments and you started just living a convenient, easy life. And so last week, we challenged you to go off the hook, to go audacious with your commitments. And we actually did this. We said, we dare you to make a two-year commitment to this church. Two-year. Oh, oh, like, seriously, I'm talking about money. Yep, talking about money in church. Whatever, get over it. Uh, seriously, well, I, I, to, for the next two years of your life, what would you give over and above your regular giving? 
Whatever you give now to this church, what will you give over and above that audaciously off the hook in a radical commitment for two years? In the- wow. You ever been to a, 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 um, you know, a timeshare uh, sales pitch or an insurance seminar or something like that where they really put the screws down on you? That's what Eric Dykes was doing here. He's putting the screws down on people. It, this is all about you know basically trying to create some kind of uh, impression that the Bible is demanding that they make some audacious commitment. And uh, what's promised is is that they're not going to have a mediocre and average life. That that if they make this audacious commitment, you know, the sacrificial giving for two years. That God is going to then somehow open the, the the windows of heaven and pour out blessings on them. By the way, I'd like to uh, give you a passage that I think kind of proves that uh, Christianity really calls people to love and serve their neighbor in their ordinary lives, in their vocation. First uh, Thessalonians chapter four, verse nine says this: Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we've instructed you, so that we may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So the script, the the big audacious above average thing that the scriptures command us to do aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and work with your hands yeah that makes perfect sense don't you think the reason why that makes perfect sense is because the bible makes it clear that it's god's will that we do not covet that we love and serve our neighbors that we honor our father and mother that we are chaste and faithful to our spouse sexually, that we don't steal, you know, things of that of that nature. And so the idea here is it's just plain and simple, okay? Um, God's will for you is to be a good father, to be a good husband, to be a good wife, to be a good child, to be a good employee. And basically the idea is, is that um, when you get in your car and you commute to work every day um, and you put in your 40, 40 plus hours of work at your job, that's a good work. That's aspiring to work with your hands, quietly minding your own affairs and doing and doing what you need to do there. You're loving and serving your neighbor. Moms, when you're children wake up in the middle of the night and say, Mom, I'm sick, and then proceed to throw up on your bed, cleaning up the vomit, taking your child, bathing your child, and caring for your child through sickness, through health, working with them on their multiplication tables, getting them in the car and taking them to Little League, helping with their homework. That's all a good work because... God has made you a mom. And so the the ordinary life that we live as mom, dad, employee, um, husband, wife, child, um, that ordinary average life, that's what God has called us to do. How do I know that? Because God's word says it so clearly. 
There's passages in the scripture where it says, slaves, obey your masters. Because this is right. To, uh, you know, it doesn't say just be audacious enough and God will set you free. No, I mean, love God in the vocation that you have been put into. And it's ordinary, and it's average, and that's how God wants you to live your life, in love and service to your neighbor, in the vocation and in the offices that he's put you into. So husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. These are all the commands that we have from God. So I can say with certainty that when you are a good employee, a good husband, a good wife, a good when when you are loving and serving your neighbor in these ordinary mundane just so despised kind of ways that you are actually doing good works. Because the Bible says so, God's word says so. So um, I aspire to uh, live quietly, mind my own affairs, work with my hands as I've been instructed, love and serve my neighbor in the vocation that God has put me into. This is a good work. Seems ordinary. Seems average. Doubt that it'll change the world, but then again, I don't see the big theology of we need to go out and change the world. Hmm, I'll have to do a word search in my computerized Bible. See if the if the phrase change the world ever shows up as something that we're commanded to do. But let's continue with this <clears throat> sermon. What would you give over and above your regular giving? Whatever you give now to this church, what will you give over and above that audaciously off the hook in a radical commitment for two years in the hopes that we can turn this space into 1,500 seats and we get a permanent spot for Zimmerman and get a permanent spot for Princeton? That's the point. But it's not really the point at all because I'm not really in the buildings and neither is Jesus. It's always really about stories of life change. We're, we're gonna, we called you to an audacious, insane commitment to give. It's all about stories of life change. When we talk about life change, I've got two words for you. Glenn Beck. Yeah, he's experienced life change. Glenn Beck, you know, he, uh, he's really open about the fact that he was a uh, an alcoholic. And that uh, he had to hit rock bottom. And he's experienced life change. He's clean and sober now. Mm-hmm. He even believes in a guy named Jesus. Now, it's not the guy, it's not the Jesus of the Bible, but he gives credit to Jesus. See, the Jesus that Glenn Beck believes in is actually uh, the spirit brother of Lucifer, who's the devil, and 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 Jesus is one of the um, well, one of the children of Elohim, who lives near a planet called, or a, you know, a distant star called Kolob. And uh, and and Elohim and his many wives are there procreating and making spirit children. And uh, he, Elohim created Earth so that uh, in order to give uh, physical bodies uh, to the um, to his spirit children there that are were you know, born to him near Kolob. And uh, he, he basically, the the god of Mormonism, well, was once a man who became a god by being obedient to his god. And see, the the really the idea here is is that as God, uh, let's see, as as man is, God once was. As um, God is, man can become. That's all the things that Glenn Beck believes in. So he's experienced life change. Do you think um, for a second that Glenn Beck has been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of his sins in the biblical Jesus? 
not on your life. Glenn Beck's a Mormon. He's part of a false religion who follows the teachings of the cult leader, Joseph Smith. So, um, but Glenn Beck has had life change, uh, most certainly. I mean, he's, he's no longer a slobbering drunk. And he's, you know, he can tell, he can, he can literally quote off the number of days that it's been since he's had his last drink. So is really life change the thing that Christianity markets? Now, granted, I, I, I want to make something clear that um, the the uh, the ancients refer to this as what we call the uh, union mystica, the, uh, the you know the sanctified life. That uh, those who have been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness, that God's wrath has been propitiated through his shed blood on the cross, that those who have been brought to believing and trusting in Christ alone for their forgiveness of their sins, that they are a new creation in Christ, and they do begin to experience progress in obedience to God and growth in holiness. It's absolutely what the Christian church has taught from the beginning. It's what the scriptures teach. But here, um, it's notice that the life change that, um, that Eric Dykstra is preaching about is all contingent upon you doing something specific. And in this particular case, you making a two-year commitment to give financially above and beyond. We continue. Not what you have, because you got nothing. Neither do I. But to give from what he has, trusting that if I give this, God will show up in a powerful way and he'll change the, our life and the lives, life of our church. That's what I talked to you about last week, and then I dared you to it. You, you basically have two weeks left. You have two weeks left to go pray with your spouse, to get alone with God, to figure out what, what, not what can I give, but what will God call me to give audaciously and over the top so we get more Buicks in the lot, more butts in the seats, and more what? Baptism. Baptisms, because it's not really about anything except Okay, so again, I go back to uh, my document that, that comes from a, 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 an organization that is really experts on uh, cults. A cult has only two basic purposes, recruiting new members and fundraising. We continue. For a seat. That's really what it's about. That was last week. Are you with me so far? Yeah. Good. Now this week we are talking about audacious contribution. Audacious contribution, which means that, with this thought. So I, can, so I can reach beyond myself. So many people, I'm going to go back to average people again. People walk around going, I can't. The word can't is the dumbest word in the human vocabulary. You can't, and you're right, you can't because you say can't. But my God never says can't, that's why he does the impossible. He always can. He always, always can. And if you would walk where Jesus walked, talk how Jesus talked, think how Jesus think, you could walk into can and stop living a life of can't. And that's what I want to talk to you about. If you walk like Jesus walked. Hmm. So apparently, I, I, the, what I'm getting from this is that the reason why Jesus came to earth was to set for us the supreme example of how we need to live our lives so that uh, we can achieve the impossible. You just need to follow the Jesus model, and then you too will be able to do the impossible. Forget just you know, not doing the, just the average, but I mean, you're going to actually be able to accomplish the impossible if you just 
apply the principles uh, and live the life Jesus lived. So this reduces Jesus down to some kind of an example that must be followed for the sake of achieving a particular end, achieving the impossible. Apparently that's what this is all about. Always can. He always, always can. And if you would walk where Jesus walked, talk how Jesus talked, think how Jesus think, you could walk into can and stop living the life of can't. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about audacious contribution. Can we do that? Go get a Bible. Go to page 170. Get a Bible. Go to page 170. Uh, that's First Samuel chapter 14 if you have your own Bible. And I would love for you to look this, this passage up. I will tell you in advance. Hey, just so you know, I'll probably get to this someplace at about minute 25 or 30 or whenever I just feel like it. So uh, eventually we'll get to that passage of Scripture. But I want you to look it up so you don't have to look it up later. I want you to keep your finger in it. Hold the spot. And we'll eventually get to a story in First Samuel, Samuel chapter 14. So I want you to have the spot out. I want you to get a pen out, a piece of paper. I want you to take some notes. And here's what's going to happen. God is about ready to rock your face off. I'm so serious. Your life does not have to be ordinary unless you decide to live it that way. So there we go. Uh, there we go again. Your life doesn't have to be ordinary unless you decide to live it that way. So apparently, the, the I mean, the big thing that uh, Christianity solves is solving that big problem of ordinary living. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, because that's really what's causing the whole world to go to hell in a handbasket is all those folks out there that are just living ordinary lives. And yet I come back to that passage, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. Aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands as we instructed you. So that we may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. There you go. Hmm. Who are you going to believe? God's word or Eric Dykstra? Or you live better. I hope you hear Jesus and I hope you change. Can we do it? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that... uh, you are the, the ruler of the church. You are the head of the church. This church is about you and for you and to you and through you. It is always only about you, Jesus. I thank you that okay, I... I, I got to point something out here. Okay, it's, it's one thing to invoke Jesus. Okay, and what I mean by invoke is that you mention him. Okay, you know, hey, Jesus, just want to mention you or acknowledge you or something to that effect. It's a whole other thing, completely different category to actually open up the scriptures and proclaim what Jesus taught, proclaim what Jesus did for us, and to teach his teachings. Okay, completely different gig altogether. Okay, in order to do the second, you actually have to open up the biblical text and start preaching from the biblical text working through an entire gospel for instance would be a you know an example okay now this is why i think that uh, churches that follow a lectionary are superior by far methodologically than um than seeker driven congregations uh when it comes to fulfilling what jesus commands in the great commission and that is teaching them all that I have commanded you to do. Look it up in Matthew chapter 28. So the idea is, is that those churches that follow a lectionary work through in, in one year's time or in three years' time almost all of the scriptures, okay? So that every major doctrine, every major theme, every major teaching, just about every major story is taught from the pulpit so that people can hear and understand the full counsel of the Word of God. 
Seeker-driven guys, I've noticed, uh, they they tend to gravitate towards particular passages. Um, and they, they really, really like Old Testament stories that they can somehow read themselves into it. Um, uh, but they, they, they don't even come close to really actually teaching the full counsel of the word of God. Like, like they're the polar opposite of the guys who actually take the time to teach the full counsel of the word of God. And so here, Eric Dykstra is going, you know, apparently he's going to be preaching from a text that oddly enough, we've heard, uh, Stephen Furtick preaching from, um, story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, that's by the way, where we're going to end up. So if you want to open up your Bibles to that story, you can. Um, but um, coming, coming back to my point, Eric Dykstra is one who mentions Jesus a lot, but he doesn't preach him. Um, if you want to know what uh, the Apostle Peter focused on in his preaching, read the Gospel of Mark. Why? Because the ancient church uh, tells us that the Gospel of Mark Though the Gospel of Mark, that's the preaching notes of the Apostle Peter. Who did Peter constantly preach about? Well, Jesus. Constantly. Read his preaching notes. Read the Gospel of Mark. Those are the preaching notes of Peter. The Apostles were obsessed with actually not just mentioning Jesus, saying, hey, this church is about Jesus, but never preaching him, never really ever correct, correctly teaching his word or giving somebody the full counsel of what it is that Jesus did and taught. The Gospels, constantly, you know, the four Gospels, they're all about Jesus. And the early church, they obsessed about teaching what Jesus taught, teaching what Jesus did. Uh-huh. So Eric Dykstra, I mean, constantly, 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 you need to invite people here so they can meet Jesus. My question is, how on earth are they supposed to meet Jesus when he doesn't really even preach about him. He doesn't work through the gospel texts, which tell us what Jesus did and taught. Um, for somebody who mentions Jesus a lot, he sure does never fall, follow through on actually preaching about Jesus. So, in other words, he, he uses Jesus' name a lot to create the impression that he's preaching about Jesus, but if he were preaching about Jesus, he actually would be preaching through the biblical texts. I have an opportunity to represent you on this stage, but, but I'm not great, only you're great. So tonight I just submit myself to your will and your leadership. I ask you to talk through me. I ask you to use my, my stupid words because I'm just a stupid guy. I ask you to use the foolishness of preaching to change people's hearts and lives. And I pray that our church will do exceedingly more than we ever dreamed possible. Not because we're awesome, but because you are awesome and we're going to follow our awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. We're going to jump right down. I'm going to talk to you about audacious contribution for a second. We're going to define audacious. Why are we using the word audacious? Because audacious means this. Put it up there. Audacious means boldness or daring. Write this down. Boldness or daring. Confident disregard for personal comfort or conventional thought. Boldness or daring. Most people are not audacious. Most people want to blend in. You get a high school, all the high schoolers and junior high kids are trying to blend in. They don't want to stand out because that would be extraordinary. They don't blend in and be like everybody else so I could be average. Yay! That's how most people live their lives. And they go, and they go off to, 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 to get, go to college and they go get a job and like make sure I dress the same as everybody else and look like everybody else and walk like everybody else. Let me make sure I can be as average and neutral and boring as I possibly can so that nobody ever, ever thinks I'm, uh, I'm good or bad. I'm just, I'm just kind of neutral and then I'm die. 
That's most people's lives. It's so sad. Again, is that the is that the problem that Jesus came to solve? What is that the real big burning issue that Jesus came to solve? I thought Jesus, according to the biblical text, was pierced for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that Jesus' shed blood on the cross was an atoning sacrifice that propitiated the wrath of God for our sins. Or as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that the gospel is this, that Christ was crucified for our sins and was raised again on the third day for our justification. Sins and justification. I don't recall any biblical texts that talk about the big problem of People just blending in and having everyday, ordinary lives. In fact, I see biblical passages that really pretty much admonish us to live ordinary lives. Hmm. Contribution, the second part of this code. By contribution, I mean this is I'm defining contribution. Boldly or daringly sacrificing for the good of others. I'm just going to stop right there. Boldly or daringly sacrificing for the good of others. Sacrifice. The word contribution literally means sacrifice. And this, this is how this, this is straight up, man. The samurai, the samurai warrior was the, were phenomenal. The word contribution means sacrifice? Well, let's look that up. I mean, you know, I mean, okay. I mean, I'm not saying that he's not telling the truth, but I mean, let's just do a little fact checking here. Merriamwebsters.com. You can find this at m-w.com. It's the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Um, contribution. Okay, found it. Let's uh, let's take a look at what the what the well definition is of the word contribution. See if it says sacrifice. Let's see if that's what this biblical text says. All right. Let's see here. Contribution. Okay. Definition. A payment as a levy or a tax imposed by military, civil, or ecclesiastical authorities, usually for a special or an extraordinary purpose. The act of contributing also, um, okay. They thanked him for his contribution of time and money. He made an important contribution to the debate. As the mayor, he made many positive contributions to the growth of a city, a book of essays, including contributions from several well-known political communists, the money was raised by voluntary contribution. So the idea here is, is that um, that uh, a contribution is, um, you know, basically a payment for a special or extraordinary purpose. But I don't see anything here at Merriam-Webster saying that. A contribute the contribution means sacrifice. Well, let's take a look at um, contribution synonyms: alms, benefaction, beneficence, charity, donation, philanthropy. I mean, yeah, anybody people could give contributions who are wealthy. I'd be, you know, and it wouldn't be necessarily be sacrificial. You know what I'm saying? So, hmm, okay, just checking. You know, just doing some fact checking with him because he seems to be shooting from the hip. All right, well, let's continue. Sacrificing for the good of others. Sacrifice. The word contribution literally means sacrifice. And this, this is how this, this is straight up, man. The samurai, the samurai warrior was the, were phenomenal 
an audacious sacrifice. In other words, this, uh, a samurai warrior would, would make a vow or a commitment to a master, to a lord, to a ruler, or to an emperor. Whoa, that's a little creepy. Um, by the way, the samurai are nowhere mentioned in the scripture. Just you know, if you're if you're confused about this fact, go go to find a, find a computerized Bible and type in the word samurai, and you will find that the samurai, well, they're a pagan military group um, out of Japan, uh, but they're not in, they're not actually found in your Bible. But it, listen to what he's saying here. He wants these people to sacrifice to a leader or a lord or a hmm listen to what the details of this are and they would say here's the deal from this moment on my life is your life i sacrifice myself on your behalf whatever you say to me i will do i will let myself be ripped to pieces i'll even they actually go so far as to say i will even kill myself on your behalf Sacrifice. That's an audacious. People don't do that anymore, man. Like, I don't, I'm not. I'm not sacrificing myself for somebody else. Yeah, it, it, it kind of weird. That's what the uh, the people who um, followed Jim Jones did there in at his cult. I think it's. Kinda, you ever heard of drinking the Kool Aid? Yeah, they sacrificed themselves for their religious leader. Kind of interesting. My Jesus kind of would live that way. My Jesus audaciously off the hook was committed to a master and he willingly had himself shredded on your behalf. I, I just put the picture. You, you want to give some details of, of uh, so Jesus had himself shredded on my behalf. What does, what does that mean? Jesus had himself shredded on my behalf. Now watch carefully or listen carefully to what it is. His expectation of the people of the crossing church is now. Okay. So Jesus willingly had himself shredded on your behalf. Therefore, dot, 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 listen to the details. You're so numb to this. You're like, that's a picture of Jesus. Whatever, airbrushed. Just Jesus, whatever. I heard that story before. Can I just tell you there was an actual guy with actual skin, and they ripped off his skin for you. They tore the, the very flesh off his back, pulled out his beard, spit him on his face, and he said, I love you. It actually occurred. They shoved a spear in his side, pulled it out, and blood and water flowed, which, by the way, is pus, just to give you happy thoughts. I'm telling you this. I want you to catch the fact that somebody died for you. Now, what does it mean that Jesus died for me? I mean, yeah, it's true. Jesus died for me. Why do I need somebody to die for me? Why did he die for me? What did he accomplish by dying for me? What does his death mean? Notice at this point, he's just mentioning the fact that Jesus died for us. No details as to why Jesus died, just that he died. And the allusion is that is to the metaphor of the samurai who is willing to sacrifice his life for his uh, for his lord or uh, commander or leader. Mm-hmm. The way is pus. Just to give you happy thoughts. I'm telling you this. I want you to catch the fact that somebody died for you. Not some dumb airbrushed picture died for you, but a real living human being got butchered, tortured for six hours, and died on your behalf. <laughs> that is audacious sacrifice. And he did it for you. Eric, why are you telling me this? Yeah, notice, apparently at this point, we've got to add the, the modifier. 
audacious. It's not that Jesus sacri- you know, you know, sacrificed himself for you. No, 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 no. That's an audacious sacrifice. You know, I, I, one of the things I've heard people say is that uh, you lose the gospel when you start adding adverbs. Um, so apparently, you know, you know, this is this is a this, Jesus audaciously sacrificed himself for our sins. There's no text that says that Jesus audaciously did anything. Eric Dykstra here is basically pointing you to Jesus and saying that's an audacious sacrifice. And now the expectation is that you make an audacious sacrifice. Listen to the details. Audacious sacrifice. And he did it for you. Eric, why are you telling me this? Because to be Christian means to be a little Christ. I told you this last week. You're to be a mini-me of Jesus. You're to walk like Jesus and talk like Jesus and think like Jesus and smell like Jesus and get a beard and rope. No, not that, that, that. But, but you're, you're to look like Jesus and think like Jesus and act like Jesus and smell. You're supposed to be a mini-me of Christ. To be Christ-like means you would sacrifice yourself for the good of others. Whoa. Um, uh, wow. Um, not sure what to make of that. So apparently, see, that was all. Jesus was setting an example. Now he expects you to make a sacrifice for the good of others. So Jesus wants you, you, to sacrifice your life the same way he sacrificed his life. Um, we've got a big problem here. Because Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just some cosmic... Um, thing that Jesus did in order to set a good example so that you then can, uh, you you need to sacrifice yourself for the world too. Um, because here, here's the idea, is that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was an atonement for sin. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was, a, was to propitiate the wrath of God. Um, Jesus was the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is why Isaiah says that he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. God's justice was being met by Christ on the cross. Um, you can't do that. Now, you can live sacrificially for others. True. But uh, we've got a problem. I've got a big problem with the way he's preaching this. Let's continue. That you would give your life for every other person sitting in this room and on every other campus. You would give your life for every other person sitting in that room, regardless if they're worth it or not, in your head. That's what it means to actually be Christian. If you don't believe me, this is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. It just says this, follow the example of Jesus. You should follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who loved you and gave himself as a what? As a what? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Jesus Christ said, I think you're so awesome, I will get myself shredded on your behalf. And then he looks at every Christ follower. To be Christian means I'm going to follow Christ. And he says this, I expect that you willingly shred your entire existence for everybody else on planet Earth. Yeah, if you got your Bible, we're going to have to put this in context. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's put this in context. Okay. Now, let me add some more context to this than what's in chapter 4. The Apostle Paul preaches the gospel clearly in Ephesians 1 and 2. 
Okay. With a really great punchlines that, that, you know, that, um, we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Um, yeah, so the idea there in, you know, we are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. It is not of ourselves. This is what Ephesians says, okay? Those verses alone in the opening the opening verses of chapter 2 show that what this guy's preaching is not correct. He's teaching a form of works righteousness that turns Jesus' death on the cross into some cosmic example that you've got to follow or else. And you're going to hear the or else in the sermon. But let me, let me put this in context. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body... One spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now I'm going to point something out here. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 preaches clearly against Eric Dykstra Perry Noble, Stephen Furtick, um, Bill Cornelius, Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, and all these guys who make the contention that their churches don't exist for Christians, but they exist for the person who's not already there yet. Um, Listen to what the Apostle Paul says here, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints— The job of a shepherd and a teacher is to equip and serve God's saints, the Christians, to help equip them for work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The, The pastoring, the shepherding, and teaching roles in the congregation are to build up the body of Christ. Yep, mm-hmm. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, and they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is as good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. For the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness not, must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Okay, now, so let's come back to verse 2, which he took out of context. Walk in love. That's the, um, that's the command. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love. That's the command. Paul is not here saying, you need to now be willing to let your lives be totally shredded and sacrificed yourself and just totally let your life be wrecked in sacrificial giving to others. That's not what this text says. And when you read it in context, it's talking about loving and teaching and building up and being sexually pure and and speaking the truth. It's not saying being willing to have your life shredded. He's totally taking Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 and misapplying it in a way that um hmm it's going to get worse, but I just want to let you know when you put this back in context, yeah, it doesn't mean what he just said it meant. Like not even close. Another danger sign here. God's going to be like, oh, I'm going to let you in because you got a big blister on your right butt cheek because you sat in church so long. And he's like, whatever. 
To be a Christ follower means following in the footsteps of Jesus. A lot of people got cuts in line to hell right now because I think they sat their, their butt in a seat long enough they're going to get to heaven. God's going to be like, I don't care about fat butts. I care about people follow me. Butcher. Salvation by works. Let me back this up. Again, you, you need to hear this. I'm going to back it up a, quite a bit. I want you to hear this in context. For every other person sitting in that room, regardless if they're worth it or not, in your head. That's what it means to actually be Christian. If you don't believe me, this is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. It just says this, follow the example of Jesus. You should follow in the footsteps of Jesus, who loved you and gave himself as a what? As a what? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Jesus Christ said, I think you're so awesome, I will get myself shredded on your behalf. And then he looks at every Christ follower. To be Christian means I'm going to follow Christ. And he says this, I expect that you willingly shred your entire existence for everybody else on planet Earth. That's not what the text says. God's going to be like, oh, I'm going to let you in because you got a big blister on your right butt cheek because you sat in church so long. And he's like, whatever. To be a Christ follower means following in the footsteps of Jesus. A lot of people got cuts in line to hell right now because I think they sat their, their butt in a seat long enough they're going to get to heaven. God's going to be like, I don't care about fat butts. I care about people who follow me. Okay, now he's literally preaching flat out salvation by works. And Jesus' death on the cross at this point is basically just some kind of an example that uh, Jesus shredded his life for you. Now you need to shred your life for others the same way. Romans chapter 3. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what then becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of course, if the Gentiles 
also, since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, we do, th- do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Well, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. No one is justified before God by works of the law. We are saved. Anybody who is saved is one who is saved by grace through faith apart from works. Now, does that mean that they don't do good works? Well, of course they do good works. There's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't do good works. But the reasons why Christians do good works is different than what Eric Dykstra is saying here. The reasons why Christians, the reason why Christians do good works is because they are a new creation in Christ and their new nature does good works. You can also say that motivationally, Christians do good works because of thankfulness and praise for what God has done. When you do a good work in order to placate God or to earn something from God, you're not really doing a good work for the sake of your neighbor. You're doing a good work for your own sake, not for the sake of your neighbor. I want to read one other passage to you. It's from the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and uh, it's in and around, it's Luke chapter 10. And uh, it starts around with verse 38. And I, I want you to compare what you're hearing him preach to this particular gospel story. Because, um, in fact, let me, uh, let, me, let me back this up just again. And I want you to hear him talking about people who have blisters on their butts who aren't going to make it to heaven. That's what he's saying. This is a matter of salvation, the way he's preaching this. And uh, this is pure works righteousness. But listen in. Gave himself as a what? As a what? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Jesus Christ said, I think you're so awesome. I will get myself shredded on your behalf. And then he looks at every Christ follower. To be Christian means I'm going to follow Christ. And he says this, I expect that you willingly shred your entire existence for everybody else on planet Earth. That's what it actually means to be Christian. Most people sitting in church calling themselves Christian and they got a big blister, like blister on the right butt cheek and they think they're going to heaven. God's going to be like, oh, I'm going to let you in because you got a big blister on your right butt cheek because you sat in church so long. And he's like, whatever. To be a Christ follower means following in the footsteps of Jesus. A lot of people got cuts in line to hell right now because I think they sat their, their butt in a seat long enough they're going to get to heaven. God's going to be like, I don't care about fat butts. I care about people who follow me. Okay, now that's, uh, that's what I want you to hear. Here's the contrasting story. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Okay, now I'm going to pause here. If the theology that Eric Dykstra is preaching at this point is really biblical theology, what we should expect Jesus to do is to rebuke Mary and tell her that she needs to get off of her blistered behind and start serving the way Martha is serving. And so that because Martha clearly is the one who is, well, shredding herself and sacrificing and serving. She's following in the steps of Jesus, isn't she? She's even serving the Lord through her work. And she's not getting any help 
from that. Lazy, good-for-nothing Mary, and all Mary's doing is sitting down and listening to Jesus teach, and she's getting a blister on her behind doing it. But here's what Jesus says. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and you're troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The the Jesus that Eric Dykstra is describing in his story is 180 degrees different. Black and white, different. Different Jesus, different than the Jesus of the Scriptures. What he's what what Eric Dykstra right now is doing is he is literally beating and whipping and driving and manipulating the people in his congregation. And he's blaming it all on Jesus and saying, This is how Jesus wants this done. But that's not Jesus. Jesus is kind. Jesus is merciful. Jesus bled and died for you, and he gives you his salvation freely. And Jesus wants you to come to church and sit at his feet and listen to his teaching. And to be, and not to be concerned at church when you're hearing the words of Christ with a lot of serving. He wants you to sit and hear his words and hear what he has done. Let me read it again. Jesus entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to get up and help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Good of the rest of planet Earth. Uh, by the way, the early church, the first Christians, they got this. You're, you're familiar with the fish symbol, you know, that they, like people see on cars and all that kind of junk. It's just a Christian symbol. I'm not going to tell you why, why that, that symbol is important, but, but, but they used to show that, that symbol is all over in the caves where the Christians used to worship in the early church. There was a secondary symbol also on the walls of the caves because Christian, Christianity was outlawed. They throw them to the lions if you, they, they saw you worship Jesus. So they worship in these caves. There was a secondary symbol on the walls of the cave. Guess what it was? It was a piece of bread. Well, seriously, no, that's not really cool and not very sexy, so we don't put that in our car. Why, why, why would, what's with the piece of bread? Because Christians said this, I am to be bread for the world. I am to be consumed on the behalf of everybody else on planet Earth. I should be shredded, consumed, and ruined, and sacrificed for the good of everybody else alive. I did a lot of research on this, and he's not telling the truth. I'm going to basically say this is a flat-out lie, and I'm challenging him to produce the proof. Because the from the beginning of the church, the symbol of bread always was followed with the symbol of wine, the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. 
I have not been able to find a single instance, and I've got a huge theological library. I've got books dedicated to Christian symbols, and I cross-reference every one of them. I spent hours on Google over the weekend trying to track this down. Wasn't able to find a single scholar on a single in a single book on a single web page with a single illustration that showed that the Christian ancient Christian symbol of bread represented Christians who were willing to have their lives consumed for the good of the world always 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 every single book in my library every single reference i found on google the symbol of bread was indicative of and symbolized the body and blood of Christ that are in communion. This, I, I, I do, he's not telling the truth. And if he can produce it, then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to see what he, he can produce on this. But I can tell you at this point, it, this smells and feels completely like a lie. Because I can't find a single instance in my entire theological library or on Google, of all places, that, that substantiates this claim. The ancient Christian symbol of bread and wine showed that that, that was about the Lord's Supper. Jesus Christ is the bread of life, not you, not me. This, I mean, this doesn't even smell theologically right, let alone historically right. Leads me to a question. How come that doesn't mean Christian anymore? You know what I'm saying? It seems to me that the majority of Christians I know, they are all about the lazy boy. And now he's plopped himself on the prop that he put on his stage. It's a lazy boy chair. Um, I don't know any Christians that are like this. I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know a single Christian. I don't know one whose basic attitude regarding life is that they're just going to sit on a lazy boy chair. Every Christian that I know serves their neighbor by being a mom or a dad or an employee. I don't know any Christians who don't serve their neighbors. Not one I don't know one lazy Christian who does absolutely nothing but sits on a lazy boy chair and serves only themselves and lives only to themselves. I don't know a single Christian, not one. Do do you know anybody who's a Christian who all they do is just sit on the lazy boy chair? Seems like a weird characterization. I I don't know anybody that fits this bill, but let's continue. It's a straw man that he's building here. They're all... About the lazy boy. Mm. This is a good place to preach from right here. I'm liking this. You can sit back. You can relax. Oh man, this is this is how I think most Christians live their life. Let's be straight up honest. Most Christians are about, I just want to get as much comfort as I possibly can for me. I'm going to be all about myself. I'm going to be all about all my own stuff and my own little world. I'm just going to relax. This is what he he just said. That this is what he believes most Christians live their lives like. 
what is he smoking? Again, I don't know a single Christian that's like that. Not one. In all of the churches that I've attended, I've never met a single Christian who's all about the lazy boy chair and only lives for themselves. And for me, I'm going to be all about myself. I'm going to be all about all my own stuff and my own little world. I'm just going to relax and, oh, God, I heard the world sucks. You should fix that. I'm going to take, I'm going to take a nap. Someday, I'm just being straight up. Okay, I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. I think someday he's going to dump a lot of religious people in their recliners right into hell. Because to be Christian means I will follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I will sacrifice myself for the good of planet Earth. What happened to Christians? When did we start wasting our lives on us? When Jesus sacrificed everything for us. That's not Christian. Christian means I will literally make sure I never sit in the chair. I will always sacrifice myself for the good of everyone else. I will never sit in the chair. I will always sacrifice myself for everyone else. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. But Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, you are worried and bothered about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. And even here, Mary is not likened to somebody who sits in the lazy boy. Sitting at the feet of Jesus to hear him preach, to hear and study and meditate on his word, that's not laziness. That's not selfishness. The job of teachers and shepherds, I just read it in Ephesians 4, is to build up the body of Christ. And here Jesus modeled it, sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's the good portion. Christian means I will literally make sure I never sit in the chair. I will always sacrifice myself for the good of everyone else. What happened to us? Now, Now, I think the better question, Eric, is what has happened to you? Have you never been taught the Christian faith? Do you not know what Christianity really is? Who taught you this false doctrine and this false gospel and this works righteousness and this religion of busyness rather than the religion of Christ has done it for us? Hmm? I thought this through. I think about it a lot. I actually, I spent a lot of time over the last two weeks. I've been thinking about this concept. I, I, here's what I used to think. I used to think Christians are stupid and selfish. We're just stupid and we're selfish. We're just flipping off the world. We don't care. We're just self-centered. I don't think you're, I don't think we're self-centered. I think most people as Christians are sitting in this chair, but they're not self-centered. They actually see all these needs out there and they, 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 they want to help and they don't. Why not? Not because they're, they're self-centered. You know what I think it really is? I think it's just one word. I think it's just doubt. I don't see Christians as seeing all these needs and doing nothing to meet them. The entire history of Christianity is filled with person after person after person after person who loved and served their neighbors. Christians are the ones who created the first hospitals. Christians are, I mean, Christians have been spearheading all of these outreach programs to take care of orphans and widows from their beginning. What? on earth are you talking about?
I mean, it's just unbelievable. I mean, apparently he, Eric Dykstra is, you know, in his own mind, he's the first and only Christian out there. And everybody else needs to, you know, no one else gets it except for him. And in the stupid chair, you're just selfish. You never heard him say that to the disciples. You know what he said over and over and over again to the disciples? Oh, ye of little faith. Or in the modern translations, they say, Jesus says, why do you doubt me? I think most people never get up out of the chair and sacrifice themselves for the good of anybody else. Not because they're self-centered, they want to help, but they're just scared. They just doubt if I get up, God will actually help me. If I get up, I could actually do anything good in the world. If I get up, I'm not going to be insignificant. I will change the world. They they don't have enough confidence that it will actually occur, and they live in fear and doubt, and they just shrivel up and die and stay in the chair. I'll give you an example. See, when I was in eighth grade, I have one of the biggest regrets of my life. In eighth grade, um, I left school, and I don't know if I was walking out back to go have a smoke or what I was doing. That's eighth grade, man. You're trying to be cool and you get a smoker. I don't know. I'm walking out back, and I'm, I'm coming around the back of the building, and, and I, I get around the back, where, and I'm by myself, and there's a big kid back there, bigger than me, and he's kicking the snot out of a little kid. I mean, he is just beating the living tar out of this little kid. I mean, the kid's bleeding, and he's crying. He's just, he's just beating the snot out of this kid. And I said, whoa, whoa. And instantaneously, it's like God said, dude, you got to stop this. you got you to stop this. you got to step in and stop this. And I'm, I'm going, yeah, I should do something. At the same time, in my other ear, is whispering, Eric, if you stop it, he's going to beat you up too. Doubt. I had a bout with doubt right there on the spot. And I said, so, 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 get some courage. I'm going to do it. And then I thought, a secondary doubt comes in my ear. Hey, hey. He probably deserves it. <laughs> you weren't here earlier. He probably said something really stupid. And he deserves to get the snot kicked out of right now. And in that instant, I knew I was supposed to help. I was supposed to get up from the chair. But guess what I did? Just like that. To this day, one of the biggest regrets of my entire life is eighth grade sitting in the chair. About without, I, I'm not really that big. I really, I couldn't fight that bully. I couldn't stop that thing. I'm just an insignificant nobody. It's really, it's, it's somebody else's problem. Somebody else should stop that. It's really, somebody else should do something about that. So I, see, it's not that I was selfish. I wanted to do something. You know what I'm saying here? I think you're the same way. It's not that you're selfish. It's that we doubt that God would actually show up and help us kick a giant's butt. The reason why David fought Goliath, not because he was like he was like he got out of the chair because he wasn't self-centered. No, he got out of the chair because he didn't doubt, and he conquered the Goliath. Same is true with you. We stay in the chair. Seriously, I actually thought about this. Um, I told you I'm gonna be random tonight because it's fun. Um, I, I sat and thought. What is it that Christians doubt most? Why, what keeps them sitting in a lazy boy with their feet up? And I came up with five. Uh, maybe you probably have a totally different list. I'm just going to, I think this is why you stay in the chair and you don't sacrifice yourself for the good of everybody else. You'd much rather have a big screen TV. You'd much rather go to the cabin on the lake. You'd much rather get another snowmobile. Much rather get another so, uh, so did you catch that? Yeah, yeah. You'd much rather get a big screen TV. So if you've got a big screen TV, well... You're on the lazy boy. 
If you uh, if you own a cabin on the lake and you go and spend time in your cabin on the lake, yeah, you're you're not doing the right thing. You're in sin. You can't be doing that. If you uh, you know if you you're getting another snowmobile, you don't need a snowmobile. You need to sacrifice yourself and give up your cabin on the lake. You need to give up your big screen TV. You need to give up that extra snowmobile. See where he's going with this? This is a money sermon like you wouldn't believe. You much rather go to the cabin on the lake. You much rather get another snowmobile. You much rather get another four-wheeler. You much rather go spend your life on you. Man, woo! It'll be all about me. Because I got one life. It's mine. You should fix that world, God. Yes. I'll give you five doubts I think people go through. Here's the first one. I, I think people just doubt God's care. If I actually sacrifice like Jesus, man, I, I doubt that Jesus would really take care of me. You know? If, like, we called you to a great sacrifice. We said, I dare you to give over and above your regular giving for two years to give the most off-the-hook give of your life. To audaciously, insanely sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed. And a bunch of you are going, ah, that's a good idea. I ain't getting out of this seat because if I get out, I don't know if God will take care of me. And so out of fear and doubt, you stay in the chair. I'll give you a secondary doubt. Uh, we doubt. We doubt our significance. If I sacrifice like Jesus, I, I, doubt, I doubt it's going to really matter. I'm just a nobody, man. I'm just a face in the crowd. I'm just, I, Pastor Eric doesn't even know my name, man. He, like, he doesn't know me. I, like, or I go to the Princeton campus or I go to the Zimmerman campus. I'm just, an, I, I'm just a face in the, a nameless face in the crowd. I'm nobody. I'm insignificant. I, if, it doesn't make a difference if I sacrifice or not. And so you don't. And you just stay in your chair. But there's a third doubt. I think a lot of people, have, they, they use doubt the mission. A lot of people doubt mission, man. I, I doubt the mission is really worth it. So I, I won't sacrifice like this. You know what? Like, it's not like the mission of the church. I mean, it, this list doesn't make any sense to me at all. I have no idea what he's talking about at this point. This is just a money manipulation press like you wouldn't believe. We're going to depopulate hell. We're going to make sure there's always space, there's always seats for one more lost person who wants to walk in the door and find hope and help in Christ that they can find this. That's the mission of the church. Some people go, ah, that's not a very good mission. I, there are so many better missions, Eric, you know. Lake Cabin is a great mission. Oh, TV and Xbox. and I'll play Samurai on the Xbox, you know. That's a much better, it's a safe mission. I'm safe. I can do that. I'll sit in my mama's basement and play video games till I die. And it's not that you're selfish because you want to help, but it's too scary to get up out of that chair. Or how about this one? I, I just doubt God's blessing. If I, if I sacrifice like Jesus, I doubt that God will really bless me. I know that he's going to probably bless Pastor Eric because Pastor Eric's the guy on the stage. He, 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 doubt, he blesses the special people, but I'm just an average ordinary dude. So if I get up out of the chair and I actually sacrifice and I give extraordinarily or I commit extraordinarily or I, if I do this, oh my gosh, I'm so not going to get blessed. I'm going to be screwed. And the doubt, not selfishness, but fear and doubt keep you in the chair. Because you're not selfish people. There's not a person in this room that doesn't want to give. You know, that's what I really know. This is your church, man. You want to be generous. You want to do this. You want to do it. 
But what will keep you in the chair locked forever here is your doubt. And then I I thought of one more. Uh, You're going to doubt that other people will sacrifice. You're just going to doubt that other people will sacrifice. If I sacrifice like Jesus, man, I doubt that anybody else is going to do this. I'll be the only one, man. Over and again, if I sacrifice like Jesus, if I sacrifice like Jesus, really, are you so arrogant to believe that you can sacrifice like Jesus and that that's what Christian? are you so ignorant that you think that that's what Christianity calls you to do? Unbelievable. That other people will sacrifice. If I sacrifice like Jesus, man, I doubt that anybody else is going to do this. I'll be the only one, man. I'll get up out of the chair. I'm going to sacrifice it. Everybody else is going to stay seated. They're all going to stay in their seats, and then I'm going to be toast. I'm going to be the only one, and if I'm the only one, oh, my gosh, it's going to be awful. And the peer pressure of what's everybody else going to do, which is the first question people ask me. I walk off the stage every service, and I say, do you think they'll actually do it? That's funny because this is the Crossing Church. <laughs> doubt. Doubt. See, Eric, uh, by, by the way, you know where I came up with my list? Because it's, it's my list. This is my life, too. You know what has kept me? Yeah, you didn't get it from the Bible, that's for sure. Thanks for the confession. It's not like I couldn't have figured that out on my own. Because it's, it's my list. This is my life, too. You know what has kept me in the chair every single time? Every single stupid moment of my life has kept me in the chair is doubts like those. Every single one, because I'm just a human being just like you. I actually thought about my life a little bit. Back in 1999, um, I was working as a teacher. I was preaching about himself again. Only hope in all the world, not a school. And I was sitting in this chair going, I got a good job. I like what I do. You want me to what? I don't even have a job. Quit. And so I got up out of the chair. Now, this is him telling the story apparently of how he received a vision from God. You know, the voice of God told him to start the church. Did it really? I didn't have a job for February, March, April, May. And all of a sudden God showed up and I moved to Minnesota and God gave me an off the hook place, place to serve. But I had to get up out of the chair first. It was, I, 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 had to, I had to bout with doubt. I just, seriously, you have to know something. When I stand up on the stage, I'm like, yeah, we're going to do this awesome thing, and it's going to be amazing, and God's going to show up. And then I walk off the stage and go, what did I just say? How are we going to do that? Because <laughs> I don't know the future either. Every time I say this stuff, I only have a 50% chance of winning. <laughs> uh, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I'm just a dude. This is what God told me to say, so I'm saying, oh, God, I hope you show up. So he apparently hears from God. He is a prophet. I'm just a dude. This is what God told me to say, so I'm saying, oh, God, I hope you show up. <laughs> Seriously. Oh, I'll give you another one. 2004, I was working at a church as a student ministry pastor, and God whispered to my Eric, I want you to quit and start a church. And I was like, what? I got a good job. I got a great job, good benefits. I can do this till I'm dead. I want you to quit, but there won't be any people. Who's going to want to come to church with me? <laughs> I, 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 I want you to quit. But I'm not pretty like, like Joel Osteen. <laughs> and I can't talk like T.D. Jakes. I say bad words in church. <laughs> Go start a church. Okay. And I, I got up out of the chair and I quit my job and 239 people showed up the very first week. Yeah. I'll tell you something, though. I had lots of doubt. 
first week we did church, I had $20,000 in the bank. So I was like, I can get paid at least for a couple months before, if nobody shows up, I'll get paid for like three months and then like six months or something, and then I won't have any more money. And I had, I had one employee, so he could get paid for a couple months. And then I was like, you know what? But if nobody shows, this we're going to be toast. So I spent all the money in the checkbook. The week before our church started, I spent $20,000 on advertising because I was so afraid nobody would show up. Nobody's going to show, nobody's going to show. So I spent 20 grand. I had $700 or less in the church checkbook. If nobody had shown up that first week, I would not have got paid, and the poor guy who came to work with me would have been screwed forever. <laughs> but I, we're going to do this. And God showed up, and people showed up, and I got, I got paid. And we stayed out of the chair. And then a year and a half ago, we bought this building for a million dollars. I was like, God, you want me to buy a building for a million dollars? We're in a little tiny movie theater church. There's like 400 of us. We don't have any money. How are we going to buy a building for a million dollars? He's like, buy it. And he bought it, and he fixed it up, and he paid for it, and he filled it up. He did. But we had to get out of the chair. Preachers love crowds, you know what I'm saying? We love crowds. And so I'm happy, and I got crowds, and this is all good. Man. I'm sitting in this chair, and it's all good. I'm leaning back, and all of a sudden, I was like, Eric. You should kick a bunch of people out and start some more campuses. But they really don't want to watch me on camera because I'm ugly. <laughs> they're, they're not going to do this. It's not, who wants to watch the preacher on camera? They're not going to go to this. And God said, get, Eric, get out of the chair. Spend a lot of money. Start campuses in other places. Kick people out of your church and make them go to those campuses so there's more seats. Fill up those other chairs. And so once again, I... I got up, and those other campuses have started to fill up. See, but the deal is this. You have to go through a bout of doubt before you're ever going to see greater things. You've got, what, what keeps you in the chair is doubt. So, Eric, how do I, how do I fight off doubt? How, like, that, that's the question, man. That's the, the million-dollar question is how do, I, how do I beat down doubt? And I got a, a great answer for you because this is all I know to do. When I'm freaking out going, we're going to do this and go, oh, crap, why did I say that? When that happens, and I'm hearing doubt in one ear, and hearing God in the other, here, here's what I do. I shout down doubt with the truth of Jesus Christ. I shout down doubt with the truth of Jesus Christ. The, the verse I put up here is John 8, verse 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will what? The truth will set you free. See, if you know the truth. See, the reason why we stay in the chair is because Satan messes with your head. He whispers in your ear, you're never going to make it. It's never going to work. It's never going to succeed. Don't get up. You're not that important. You're not that valuable. Stay in the chair. And if you listen to that, you'll stay lame and average forever. On the other hand, if you listen to the other voice in your other ear, which is really the truth of this book, and it's screaming out over your life, you can do greater things. You can do greater things. Get up. Succeed. You can win. Get up. If you listen to this truth, hmm. uh, the uh, the Christian gospel is that Jesus succeeded and that he is the one who got up from the grave on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. I don't know what this thing is all about. Some kind of motivational pep talk at the end of it, though, the, the real sales pitch is going to come in. Wait till you hear do greater things. You can do greater things. Get up. Succeed. You can win. Get up. If you listen to this truth, you will survive and you will thrive. The only way I've ever succeeded at anything is to shout down drought, to doubt with the truth of Christ. It's just the deal.
He's the one who's gotten out of the lazy boy. He's the one who's uh, succeeded. He's the one who's conquered and isn't isn't being drug into an average life. Hmm. Well, let me give you, see if I can give you an example of this. See, um, now, now I'm actually going to take you to that story in the, in the Bible I told you to go to, like page 170. I told you. It's- okay, now as we're listening to the story, he's going to um, he's going to omit some very important verses. Pay close attention because the omission is important. It shows you that he's manipulating the text here. We're going to talk about uh, a dude named Jonathan. I want, I want to give you an example of a dude who shouted down doubt for just a minute. See, in, 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 on page 170, in First Samuel chapter, tw- chapter 14, there's this guy named John. And John wants to fight bad guys. He wants to be a superhero, man. He wants to fight bad guys. He's in an army. But he doesn't want to fight him with the rest of the army. He wants to fight him all by himself. That's, that, seriously, I'm going to make it up. He wants to fight him all by himself. And this is the story. That happens in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. We'll read it. We'll start here. 1 Samuel 14, 6 says this. Let's go across to the outposts of those pagans. Let's go beat up bad guys. We're going to do it. We're going to win. I'm going to be a superhero. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, and then I want you to. I'm going to be a superhero. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think that uh, Jonathan was really all about him becoming a superhero. It seems a little weird, don't you think? Per- perhaps the Lord might help us. Maybe. May- Maybe, maybe if I get up out of the chair, God could do something off us. Maybe not. Maybe we'll just die. Maybe we'll get slaughtered. Maybe, maybe we'll get our guts and entrails will be ripped out and thrown out all across. I don't know. Maybe... He's eisegeting. He's inserting stuff that isn't in the text. Um, let me read it. First Samuel chapter 14, verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. It doesn't sound like doubt. It sounds like utter faith here. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. So then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But... If they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming up out of holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor bearer after him, and they fell, and they, that's the Philistines, fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they uh, killed them after him. And after that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within it, were a half a furrow's length and an acre of land. So here's the deal when you read the story in context. Doesn't say that Jonathan um, was struggling with doubt. Um, he, he was firm in his faith that God is capable to, capable of delivering from you know by many or by few, and he didn't want to be presumptuous. And so he said, "Okay, listen, we're, we're, we don't want to assume that God's going to give them into our hands. So we're we're going to basically do this. If we're going to go up there and show ourselves to the Philistines, if they say this, then God has not given them into our hands. If they say this." then we know that God has given them into our hands. 
And then once they got confirmation that the Lord had given them into their hands, they acted on that and uh, went for it. But see, here's the deal. As you listen to uh, Eric Dykstra tell the story, see which part of the story he leaves out. Because at this point, he's eisegeting his own uh, his own stuff in here. Nowhere in the text is, is there any indication that uh, Jonathan had any doubt whatsoever. His whole idea from beginning to end is that God is capable of saving by many or by few, but we're going to test to see if this is what the Lord wants us to do. We continue. We got... <laughs> We should get up and do something. But if we get up, we might lose. Doubt. He's, he's messed up. Do, do I do this? Do I not do this? He, he, how does he, and how's he do this? I love this next phrase. Check it out. Perhaps the Lord will help us. And then, and then he shouts down his doubt with truth. For nothing can hinder the Lord. For nothing can hinder the Lord. My God is the God of the impossible. He can take the, he can take the impossible and make it possible. Nothing can hinder my God. He can win a battle whether we have many warriors or only a few. I can do this all by myself. All he needs is one guy to get up out of the chair. If I get up out of the chair, we're going to win this. This is what Scripture says. And, the re- and then, here's what happened. This is so cool. Because in this moment, as he shouts down his doubt, something awesome occurs. And we're going to get back to the story in a second. But he, he does something off the hook amazing. But it's the same with your life. You're always going to have in one ear doubt. You can't do this. You can't succeed. You can't win. You're never going to do anything great. You're always going to suck and sit in the chair. And in the other ear, you're going to have God whispering, you can do great things. God's got greater and greater things prepared for you. You can do this. Get up from the chair. Trust me. Don't be someone of little faith. And as you hear those and you own, I will shout down doubt with truth. You will do awesome things. You will. This is so important. Now, let's go back over the same five things that most Christians doubt. Now, let's just put some perspective on them for just a minute. I want to give you the same five things. But now we're going to, instead of just talking about doubt, let's talk, let's talk about truth of each of the doubts that we, that we face. Because I did call you to an extraordinary sacrifice, an extraordinary commitment. I called you to give the greatest gift of your life over and above your regular giving for two years. That's insane. That's scary stuff. Do you want my money, preacher? I do want your money. So does Target, Walmart, and Starbucks. But only the church of Jesus Christ will change the world. Seriously, what are you going to give to? You're going to give some more money to Starbucks? How are they going to help the world? We change the world here. I have no problem asking you for money because my great God is going to take that money and use it and change thousands of lives. That's truth in the face of doubt. I will shout down your doubt in a second. If you don't like it, deal. My Jesus is more awesome than you. (laughs) He is. He's just more awesome than you. So let's talk about doubt for just a minute, shall we? Five biggest doubts people face. Let's go over again. If I sacrifice, man, I I, I doubt God will care for me. God God doesn't really care about me. He only cares about the preacher on the stage. Well, here's what Philippians 4 verse 19 says. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He promises he will supply all your needs if you follow him. What's all mean? All. All means all. That's a pretty big thing. All. So in other words, if I get up out of this chair and I sacrifice insanely and radically for Jesus... He promises he will meet every single need I have. All- Whoa, that is bad. Okay, I, I, I'm going to play this this, this smidge, uh, this clip just again. I'm going to back this up because I want you to hear the quid pro quo. I want you to hear the works righteousness. 
They, God will meet your needs if. Yeah, hang on a second here. You need to hear it in context again. Here we go. My Jesus is more awesome than you. <laughs> he is. He's just more awesome than you. So let's talk about doubt for just a minute, shall we? Five big, biggest doubts people face. Let's go over them again. If I sacrifice, man, I, I, I doubt God will care for me. God's, God, God doesn't really care about me. He only cares about the preacher on the stage. Well, here's what Philippians 4 verse 19 says. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in, in glory in Christ Jesus. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. He read Philippians 4 19, which says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Watch what he does with the rest of it. I want to point this out. So he's quoting a verse out of context, and now here's he's adding stuff to it. Here we go. Uh, he promises he will supply all your needs if you follow him. What's all mean? All. All means all. That's a pretty big thing, all. So in other words, if I get up out of this chair and I sacrifice insanely and radically for Jesus, he promises he will meet every single need I have. So if you sacrifice everything, then God will supply all your needs. This for that. That's pure works righteousness, by the way. So is that what's, uh, what Paul is saying there in Philippians? Well, let's take a look. Uh, Philippians, we're going to put this in context by going back to Philippians chapter 3. Context, 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 Okay. Paul talks against works righteousness in this passage, by the way. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 2, Paul says, Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. Now listen to this list, okay? Here's Paul's list of his righteous deeds. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Whatever gain I had, I count as a loss loss for the sake of Christ, though. Hmm. Paul sacrificed everything when he was a Pharisee. And he says, all of that's rubbish. Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, his good works, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have already obtained all of this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have made uh, to have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind straining towards what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. Let those of you who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those 
who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Daya, and I entreat Synthi, and I to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except for you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent, uh, you sent to help. You sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more, and I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice that's acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Hmm. When you put it back in context, um, it's no quid pro quo here. It doesn't say, if you sacrifice audaciously, then God will supply all of your needs. text doesn't say that at all. He's just making that up. He's going to help me with the need I have in my marriage. He's going to help me with the need I have in my career. He's going to help me with the needs I have for my future. He's going to meet all. This is truth. Stop listening to doubt and listen to truth. If you get up out of the seat and you sacrifice, if you stop living a lazy boy average life and you sacrifice, God will meet all your needs. That's truth. And you could do great. If you sacrifice, then God will meet all your needs. Wow. Great things. Uh, I'll give you a second one. If I sacrifice... I, I doubt it really matter. I'm not that important. I'm not that valuable. I'm just one insignificant guy in the crowd. It's not really going to matter. Well, here, here's what actually what Luke chapter 21, verse 1 through 4. Let's talk about what, what, what the Bible says. As he looked up, 
Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small coins. So one poor woman puts in all she has. She puts in two very small coins. And he says this, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put in more than any of the others. All the other people gave their gifts out of their wealth. Let me stop for a second. Let's just see if I can give you this, see if this makes sense to you. All the other people are going, yeah, I heard some people got some needs. God, that's cool. Here, take some cash and leave me alone. They gave out of their, that's what giving out of your wealth is. If I got something, and I got some extra, there you go. Whatever. Leave me alone, I'm going to take a nap. That's insignificant giving. On the other hand, look what he says next. But she gave out of her poverty, put in everything she had. In other words, this. God's not looking at the amount. He's looking at you as a human being, and he sees you as significant and not insignificant. He's just asking you to get out of the chair with whatever it is you have. That's all he's asking. Some of you, and you need to give off the hook insane because you got it. And to sacrifice greatly is going to require a big gift. Some of you, you don't got so much, not so much. But you still don't go, well, that's somebody else's job because I'm insignificant. No, I go, what will God call me to give? What will he ask of me to do? Because I'm still going to sacrifice with what little I have. See, we're going to give unequal gifts, but we're going to sacrifice equally. That's how the church of Jesus grows. That's how we thrive. That's the truth. Your gift is never insignificant. There's not one person sitting in this room on any of these other campuses that is insignificant. Your gift is incredibly, insanely valuable to God. Every gift counts if it's sacrificial and not out of their wealth. Third, I doubt this mission is really worth it, you know. It's just not really that valuable. There's greater gifts that we could give to, you know. There's greater things we could give to. Like we could build a hospital. Oh, it's good. We can help some people, man. We can fix some bones and fix cancer, maybe. Or oh, we can we can help poor people in Africa. We can we can we can help the poor. And I would here's what I just need to say it straight up. That's all good. But poor people still die and go to hell forever. You feed them for two weeks, six months, eight years. Your life is seventy five years. If you're lucky, you might get eighty. If you live to ninety five, it's going to suck. You don't want to live that long. But 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 if you if you live to seventy five, eighty years old, this life is the dress rehearsal. The main event is next, and it's a lot longer. And you go one of two places, heaven or hell. There is no other greater mission on planet Earth than helping people know that Jesus loves them and they don't have to go to hell. And by the way, if people are like, oh, but if I give, if I give money to the church, poor people will starve. Can I just tell you something? God is the God of the impossible. Like God's got like only so much money. If you give money to church, poor people are screwed. He's God, dude. He just asks you to give whatever he tells you to give. And he's really good at taking care of everybody else, too. And by the way, we do care about poor people. We got an orphanage in Haiti that we take care of all these kids. I, I, I've been there. Like, we're, take, we're taking a team there in, in May. We have a, we have a full, if for those of you that are like, I'm not giving because you don't care about poor people. I have an orphanage in Haiti. What do you got? I take care of 25 children, food, clothing, shelter, Jesus, and an education. What do you do? It's an excuse so you don't have to give. Straight up. You don't care about, I, I, I have an orphanage, what do you got? And by the way, those of you that are part of the Crossing Church, you have an orphanage also. You're helping poor people. 
I'll give you a verse about this. Let's see if I can put it into perspective. Luke chapter 16, verse 9. Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself. Or you should use whatever bling you got to gain some friends, not for you, but for Jesus. Whatever bling I got, I'm going to get up out of my chair and use them to help people. So that when my money is all gone, when I've sacrificed all I have, when I have nothing left over, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings or you'll have a future in heaven. In other words, this, God wants you to walk into heaven, not by yourself, but surrounded by other people who have found Jesus because you used your wealth to get them there. Sacrificial, audacious gifts. This is what Christianity is about. And those of you that will sit in the chair are going to be like, I got to stay in the chair because, you know, it's a mission. I got bigger missions. You know, like, it's really good if I could go get, like, the TV and the, the house and the lake. And, oh. But you don't got to listen to doubt. You don't got to be paralyzed by average. It's just your life. I'll give you another one. If I sacrifice, I doubt that God will bless me, man. He don't bless the guy on the stage because he got a tie on. <laughs> We're tied to church, isn't that weird? <laughs> he, got, he got a tie on. Like, he'll bless him, but he's not going to bless me. Let's just talk about truth for a second. Deuteronomy 15 verse 10 says this. This is what the Bible actually says when you're going, God's not really going to bless me. He only blesses the dude on the stage. Give freely without begrudging it. Or stop being a grumpy pants with your bling. Give freely without being a grumpy pants. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. What's everything mean? Man, hey, don't bless the guy on the stage because he got a tie on. <laughs> I wore a tie to church, isn't that weird? <laughs> he, got, he got a tie on. Like, you bless him, but he's not going to bless me. Let's just talk about truth for a second. Deuteronomy 15 verse 10 says this. This is what the Bible actually says when you're going, God's not really going to bless me. He only blesses the dude on the stage. Give freely without begrudging it. Or stop being a grumpy pants. With your bling, give freely without being a grumpy pants. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. What's everything mean? What's everything mean? Everything. In other words, I'm going to bless your finances. Okay, hold on a second here. Um, He's trying to pull a fast one, and I mean that. Context, context, context. Always beware of the person who is ripping verses out of context and stringing them together. Now, here's the question I have for you. He just said... Deuteronomy 15, verse 10 says, Give freely, and the Lord will bless you in all of your needs. Is that what this verse is saying? Is this in the context of giving to your church? Well, let's take a look at the context. So we're going to back up a few verses. Deuteronomy 15, verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, In any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year or the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and then he cries to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all of your work and in all that you undertake." For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. 
Um, this isn't giving to church. In fact, it even says lending to him without interest, by the way, because that's a sin. It's called usury. Um, so, um, hmm, weird um, that uh, Eric Dykstra is saying, this is what the Bible says. This is the truth. Give grudge, give without grudging, and God will supply all of your needs. He will, hmm, what he's saying that this verse promises, it doesn't promise at all, and he's left out all of the important pieces of it. Let me back it up, and you can hear it again for yourself. I'll give you another one. If I sacrifice, I doubt that God will bless me, man. He's going to bless the guy on the stage because he got a tie on. <laughs> We're tied to church, isn't that weird? <laughs> he, got, he got a tie on. Like, he'll bless him, but he's not going to bless me. Let's just talk about truth for a second. Deuteronomy 15 verse 10 says this. This is what the Bible actually says when you're going, God's not really going to bless me. He only blesses the dude on the stage. Give freely without begrudging it. Or stop being a grumpy pants with your bling. Give freely without being a grumpy pants, and the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. What's everything mean? What's everything mean? Everything. everything. In other words, I'm going to bless your finances. I'm going to bless your future. I'm going to bless your marriage. I'm going to bless your children. I'm going to make sure that you're, you're... Here's what we think. We think, if I give money to this... If... Hmm. The text doesn't say the thing that he says it said at all. He's a false teacher. He's twisting God's word. He is manipulating these people. And basically trying to create the impression that God wants them to give sacrificially to them. And that once they do, that God will bless their marriage, their finances, their career, their children. Everything will just automatically just be blessed. And that's not what Deuteronomy 15 says at all. If you just give out of the chair, I, would, I, I can make sure they don't even have to even have a cavity again. Because I'll bless everything they got. Everything they got. Give you another verse. This is good. This this will just follow that right up. Matthew chapter 25, verse 29. To those who use well what they are given, use whatever you got well, more will be given to you. This is Jesus talking. And they will have a what? An abundance. Or they will have way more than they're ever going to need. Way more than they're ever going to need. But those who are unfaithful, and they sit in the chair, oh my gosh, I can't give anything because I'm going to be screwed. That's funny, but it's so pathetic because so many people live like this. They would rather live fearful, ordinary lives than see anything cool ever happen in their life. But to those, go back to the verse, but to those who are unfaithful, freaking out, living in the chair. Hmm, freaking out, living in the chair. That's the equivalent of unfaithful. Hmm. (laughs) Sorry. Even what little they have will be what? Taken away. In other words, fine. You want to keep your butt in that chair? Cool. I'll take whatever little bit you have and take more away. Because you're ruining the world instead of helping the world. Hmm. Context, context, context. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents. To another, two, and to another. to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. Can I point something out here? The parable of the talents. Who's the one who gave the master? Who's the master in the story? Jesus. Jesus is the one who gave. Now, um, to each one he gave five talents, and another one two, and then each according to his ability, and then he went away. No command. 
just that he went away. He gave him these, and then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. He made five more talents. Also, he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I am with five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And also to the one who had two talents, he came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. To the one who had received the one talent, he came forward saying, Master, I knew that you are a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. His mansard answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers at my coming. I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, to he who ha- and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Yeah, is this about giving to your church? Hmm. The master is the one who gave. They took what the master gave and his property, and it produced more. His property produced more. Hmm. What would be God's property? I know, like the gospel, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. He's given that to us. So we can go and do business with it. Proclaim that gospel. And when we proclaim it, it it, it produces more people. It, it, it creates a harvest, an abundance, right? Doing business in the name of the master. It's his stuff. This isn't about sacrificial giving at all. If anything, you could say it's about doing business in the name of Jesus. But see, he didn't quote that in context. He quoted it out of context so that he can make it say whatever he wants it to say. You're part of the problem, not the solution, so I'll make sure your life is worse. On the other hand, you get up out of this chair and, oh, you walk into the spotlight of God. Look at the third verse. John chapter 12, verse 26. My, this is Jesus talking again. My father will honor the one who what? Serves me. In other words, if I get up out of this seat and I serve Jesus and I follow Jesus and I sacrifice like Jesus, God promises, if you honor me, I will in turn shine the spotlight right back on you, baby. <laughs> They walk into the blessing of God. He's going to honor you. On the other hand, those that refuse to get out of the chair, spotlight of blessing never falls on your life. And then you're mad at God like it's all God's fault. So the, the, the blessing, spotlights of God's blessing never falls on your life if you don't get out of the chair. Hmm, I can think of a lot of pagans who have some pretty amazing lives. 
you know, wealthy pagans who, who really, really seem blessed. Hmm. You know, you think of the multi-millionaire, the uh, Tiger Woods. I mean, even though he had to give away, you know, half of his estate to uh, his ex-wife for cheating on her pretty badly. Uh, he, he's experienced life change. He's been to therapy and, um, and uh, he credits Buddhism with helping him to overcome his sexual addiction. Hmm. And yet he's, he's really, I mean, he's really, really, really wealthy. I can think of a lot of pagans who live some pretty decent lives, pretty happy. I mean, by these standards, we'd say they are blessed. They have healthy marriages. They have well-padded bank accounts, good 401ks, right? Hmm. How is that possible? Like, um, hello, you're sitting in the chair. If you keep sitting in the chair, I'm going to take away the chair. <laughs> I'm sitting on the floor. And it's all about whether you're going to sit in the chair and get up. And it's really not because you're self-centered. I don't think anybody, I'll say it again. I don't think any of you are self-centered. It's just doubt. I, I don't think God will really provide. He won't really come through. He won't really do this. And I got to tell you, he will. You got to listen to truth and not doubt. And I'll give you one more. If I, if I sacrifice, you know, I, I doubt that others around me are going to do this. I doubt that anybody else, I'm going to stand up and that guy down the row, he's going to laugh at me because I gave and he didn't. And he's going to be laughing his way forever because he's going to get the, he's going to, he's going to be like, ah, oh, look at that, how stupid they are because they follow that, whatever. And so now I have to get back to the story of Jonathan for a second because sometimes you know what you really need? You need a friend who just got your back. Let's go back to the story of John just for a minute. Check it out. We'll go back. I'm being random tonight. First Samuel 14, 6 and 7. Hey, let's go across and fight bad guys. Jonathan said to the armor bearer, perhaps the Lord will help us. He's doubting. For nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle, whether he has many warriors or only a few. Now he's listening to the truth. And then I love this part. Um, the armor bearer goes, hey, John, well, whatever you think is best, let's do that. I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. And in one translation it says, I am with you heart and soul. I think one of the reasons why John got out of this chair and about, is about ready to do something awesome is because as he stood up, his friend goes, dude, that's cool. I am with you. I got your back. Sometimes you just need to know. Sometimes the reason why we doubt so much is we just think, nobody else is going to do this. I'll be the only one. It's never going to work. So I'll, I'll stay in the chair. So I, I thought we should just handle this right now. We'll just cut through the junk, shall we? Um, for those of you that are planning on audaciously con contributing to the Code of the Samurai, by the end of this campaign, I won't put your hand up. Just put them up. Put them up, put them up. Look around the room. Look around the room. I want you to look at all these people who got your back. There are people all over this room. I bet there's, there's hands up on all of the other campuses. Almost every hand is up. And for those of you that are, if this is your church, you don't have to put your hand up, but I just want you to know. Seriously, this church, we are going to do this together. We got each other's backs. We're going to sacrifice together, and then we're going to watch together as God shows up. Live in faith and not in doubt, and then you see great things occur. But now I got I to go back to the story again, see, because there's one more thing we haven't talked about. It's not enough to just listen to truth. It's all good. I'm glad we're listening to truth. But there still has to be a moment where you go, yeah, that is the truth. I'm getting out of this chair. You still have to actually get up. You have to act on the truth that you got, not just go, yeah, I think God could show up. Yep. You actually got to get up. <laughs> You actually got to get out of the chair. So let's go back to the story just for a second. This is, this is 1 Samuel 14, 12 through 14. I love this. Come on. Climb up this cliff with me, Jonathan says to the armor bearer. For the Lord will help us defeat them. Notice now he's got all kinds of courage.
notice he left out a part of the story. He left out the part where they said, Jonathan said, if they Philistines say this, then we know that God has given them into our hands. And if they say this, then we know that God has not given them into our hands. He left that part out. I think the reason he left that out is because the story doesn't work the way he's trying to manipulate the story to work if you tell the story as it is. He had to leave that part out so that he can create an impression that the text does not give. Truth that you got. And I just go, yeah, I think God could show up. Yep. You actually got to get up. You actually got to get out of the chair. So let's go back to the story just for a second. This is, this is 1 Samuel 14, 12 through 14. I love this. Come on. Climb up this cliff with me. Jonathan says to the armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. Notice now he's got all kinds of courage. God's going to kick their butt. Let's go. I mean, he's, he's got it going on. Now he's, now he's up out of the seat. So they, I love this next part. So they climbed up using their hands and feet. Notice that they didn't, they didn't, they didn't like sneak up the cliff with their swords all like ready to go. No, they put their swords in their backpack. They're like, whatever, God's going to kill them all. Here we go. Let's go. And they just climbed up. Like total faith and confidence God's going to do this now. Two guys against a whole army. The reason they had faith and confidence that God was going to do it is because they had tested God. They weren't presumptuous, and they looked for a sign that God was going to give them into their hands, and God gave them the sign that he had given them, the Philistines. 20 men in all, and their bodies were shattered over about a half an acre. <laughs> so he, he gets up to the top of this cliff, and he's like, what's up? God's going to kill you all now. And he kills 20 of them. I, mean, he just, like, I love that. This is cool stuff. Two guys kill 20 dudes. That's pretty sweet. That's not even the coolest part of the story. The coolest part of the story is what happens next. This isn't even the cool part yet. A dude kills 20, and then here's the, here's the, the next part, First Samuel 14, 14, 15. Suddenly, boom, boosh, panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, ah, including all the outposts and the raiding parties. And just then, an earthquake, wham, struck the ground, and everyone was terrified. You know what just happened here? God showed up. See, I want you to catch this. See, as long as they sat in the chair, they never saw a move of God. But the second that they trusted, you know, if I get out of this seat and God's going to do this, I will trust truth. I will get up. All of a sudden, boom, an earthquake happened. All the people are like, ah, they were covering like, yeah, oh my God. It's all good. And Jonathan didn't get any of the credit at that point. Guess who got all the credit? God did, man. He scared away the enemy. And it wasn't John who was awesome. It was Jesus. Because really, that's why our lives exist. It's always only about Jesus. See, the truth of the matter is, if you get up from the chair, this is when the miracles happen. This is when... When you, when you... And he's not preaching Jesus. He's preaching you. When you get up from the chair, this is when the miracles happen. Really, uh, got a verse that says any of that? When the miracles happen, this is when astounding, greater things actually could occur in your life. And the reason why average never, it just continues to plague you is because you continue to sit and you live in doubt. But when you get up and you trust with truth, the result is miracles. Not just, by the way, for John, because John saw, boom, an off the hook, great miracle that day. But now, 2010, you see him too. What do you mean? Well, see, I have, a, I have this pastor friend in, in, the, in the Carolinas, um, a pastor of a church called Elevation Church. This would be Stephen Furtick. What do you mean? 
Well, see, I have, a, I have this pastor friend in, in, the, in the Carolinas, um, a pastor of a church called Elevation Church. Um, pastor Stephen Furtick, I don't know if you heard of him or not. But Pastor Stephen is, is a man of God. He's 30, 30 years old. I'm 37. Um, he started his church about a year after we started ours in the Carolinas. So a year after us, he started their church. So they've been around for about five years. We've been around about six. On the average weekend attendance right now, they run about 6,000 people. Yeah. We run, in six years, about 2,500 people. I look at this place and go, a tornado of God has happened in this community. They are seeing her. Man, if that's the case, and a tsunami has happened for fighting for the faith, because we got a lot more people who download the podcast daily than attend Elevation Church or Elk River, uh, you know, the crossing in Elk River on a daily basis. Weird. Hmm. If you know the backstory on Stephen and his church, he walked up to seven people sitting in a Lazy boy, and I said, he said, uh, the, the, the hope, only hope in all the world is the church of Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you to make an audacious contribution. I want you to sell your house and give all the money to the church. We're all going to go live in apartments together, and we're going to start a church. Seven families sold everything they had. Audacious contribution. Moved into apartments, and in the course of six years, a miracle of God happened there. Why? Because they had to get out of the chair before the miracle. What we want to do is be like, hey, God, it's really scary. You should have a miracle happen. <laughs> so now get up. Now notice, again, the story that he didn't tell the all the details there from First Samuel is that uh, Jonathan didn't go and uh, and attack the Philistines until God had told him that he was going to give the Philistines into his hand. He omitted that. Miracle happen. So now get up. Go ahead. I'm waiting. And nothing ever happens because he's like, hey, dummy, get out of the chair and the miracle will occur. The, by the way, can I just tell you this? I'm just, just being honest because I'm a pastor and we should be honest in church. I'm really competitive. <laughs> and pastor Stevens only 30 years old and he's got a church of 6,000. I am 37 years old. I want to see miracles happen here too. I'm so serious. Guys, God's not going to grow this church to 6,000 or 10,000 or 12,000. God gave us this plan off the beginning. This is going to be a church of 20,000 people. It's going to happen. So apparently God has told him that that's going to be a church of 20,000 people. It's going to happen. 200 locations all over Minnesota. That's what he says God's told him. We contribute. And we do it sacrificially like the early church. We are the bread of the world. We are the bread of the world. No, Jesus is the bread of life. That's what he said. I mean, this is 180 degrees backwards. The focus is on us, not Christ. I will be shredded for the lost and the least and the lonely and the left behind. I will give my life to make sure not one more person has to go to hell. I'll give everything I got. I'll give my future. So here's, here's what I'm going I'm to call you to audacious contribution. You have two weeks. What are you going to give? I, I told you I'm going to give audaciously. I'll just be straight up. I'm going to give $40,000. For those of you that think, I'm, that think I'm some rich pastor on TBN, can I just be straight up? I live in a little tiny house. And I have one, one, one little crappy van. 
I don't know. How, I don't, God called me to give this, and I'm going to give it. So he's going to give forty thousand. He's uh, ponying up uh, forty grand to himself. Okay. I don't know. How, I don't. God called me to give this, and I'm going to give it. Over the course of two years, I'm going to give the biggest, most ridiculous, audacious gift of my life. And God's going to do great things. I, I cashed in my whole 401k. I got the check in the mail today. This, I, I, I cashed the whole thing in. Whole so he cashed in his 401k. Okay. Things coming to the church. Because I believe in the mission of the local church. It is the only hope in all the world. I don't have any problem saying that. I'm not, I'm not going to apologize for this. I know that we are going to see miracles of God. And so I will step up and I will audaciously contribute. And so I would look at your life and say, what are you going to, what are you going to do? Not what can you do, but what will you do? Because if you'll do it, the result is greater things. For your life and for the church, I'm, just, I'm going to end with the verse I ended with last week. It's John chapter 14, verse 12. It just says, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Jesus said, anyone who has faith in me will do what? What I have been doing. Cue sappy music. This is for emotional manipulation. What I have been doing. Whatever. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. In other words, if you really have faith in Christ, you're going to get up out of the chair. You're going to audaciously contribute because you're going to do what Jesus did. You're going to do it. And here's the cool part. I love this last phrase. And he will do even greater things than these. He just said, if you do this, you could potentially do greater things than me, guys. You can do greater things than Jesus. I don't know how it works. I don't understand it all. But here's what I know. The only way you ever see a miracle of God is you do the audacious, off-the-hook, insane so they, that's the only way you can see a miracle is if you do the audacious. Op- God's waiting for you to do it. If you don't, well, you'll never see a miracle. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Bible doesn't teach this anywhere. Gave it all. By the way, he gave it all. Let's just check this out. He gave it all and then uh, died. And it was really bad for like three days, but then God resurrected him. Watch what he does here. As you sacrifice... God resurrects you. As you sacrifice, God resurrects you. That is flat out blasphemy. He resurrects you. But without sacrifice, there is no resurrection. Yeah, without you sacrificing, there is no resurrection. See, Jesus' death and resurrection was all just an example that you need to follow. If you want resurrection in your life, well, you need to sacrifice to the point of death. It's like Jesus did. There just isn't. On any part of your life. And so we're going to call you to be like Jesus. I want you to think about, like, some of you need to give your 401k. You just do. You so, know there you, so there you go. Some of you have to give your 401k. Those are his words. Some of you have to give your 401k. Again, I'm going to back this up. You, sacrifice there is no resurrection there just isn't on any part of your life and so we're going to call you to be like jesus i want you to think about some of you need to give your 401k you just do you know god's talking to you right now i gotta i gotta give it so, so you gotta give some of you gotta give your 401k several people called the church last week and said i'm gonna give it how do i do that 
Some of you, man, you're going to sell a car, you're going to sell a boat, maybe you'll sell a house. So some of you got to sell a car, a boat, or a house. Okay, just do. You know God's talking to you right now. I got I to give it. Several people called the church last week and said, I'm going to give it. How do I do that? So, some of you, man, you're going to sell a car, you're going to sell a boat, maybe you'll sell a house. Some of you sell a tree, just don't sell drugs. Don't do that. But well, whatever, but, but I want you to, maybe you turn off your cable. Stop. So you do without cable, get rid of that. I'm going to Starbucks for coffee. Yeah, I got to give your Starbucks habit. But we want you to actually live like Jesus, sacrificially. Yeah, see, Jesus' sacrifice was an example that you need to sacrifice just like he did. Not to just give from your wealth. Yeah, don't just give from your wealth. If, you're, if you've got a gazillion dollars, yeah, no. Don't give from your you got to give sacrificially. So if you've got... If you've got a big padded uh, bank account, you got $3 million in the account, don't just give from your wealth. Give it all. Do like Jesus would. Your pastor's going to do this because I believe in this with everything I got. And I would challenge you as well because greater and greater things could occur. I, I want to end, but I, I want to end with, I, I just got to tell you this. I, I used to take my kids to the beach when they were younger. And my, my- now he's stealing a story from Stephen Furtick. Mm-hmm. This is a Stephen Furtick story. He's flat out stealing it. The w- waves, and, and they always like to jump the waves. They'd be like, look, Dad, I can jump the wave. And the water's like this deep, so it's like easy. Like, yeah, look, I'm awesome. I can jump the wave. I'm like, oh, that's impressive. So I'm like, why don't we go out deeper in the water? And so I grab their hands, and we start like, come on, you can go out deeper. And they're like, no, Daddy, no, Daddy, you're going to drown. I'm going to drown. I'm going to drown. I'm like, you can do it. Come on, let's go out deeper. And we uh, get them out to about waist deep, and then this big old wave is going to like totally drown them. And I'm like, wow, look how awesome you are. And they're like, yeah, I am awesome. I jumped the wave. Did they, did they jump the wave? Daddy was the wave jumper. They just trusted me to take them deeper. And your life's not any different. Your daddy's going, why are you jumping in the shallow water? Thinking you're all that. I dare you to go out deeper. Come on, I'm dragging you out here. And you're going to go, no, it's a big wave. I can't do it. He's going to go, oh, look how awesome you are. Because he promised you greater things. He promised to honor you as you sacrifice and you serve for him. And I, I cannot wait someday to walk into heaven knowing I gave all I have. You're going to walk into heaven because you gave all you have. I thought the reason why we we're going to be able to walk into heaven is because Jesus gave all he had. Huh. Weird. He says, he, you know, it's all about Jesus, yet he doesn't preach the biblical gospel. Weird. Audacious contribution. I dare you to do it. Be a wave jumper. It's fun. Well, yeah, you shouldn't. Only- you shouldn't do it because he only dared you to do it. He didn't double dog dare. See, now if he had double dog dared you to do it, then maybe you might consider it. But yeah. only one who matters. Audacious contribution. I dare you to do it. Be a wave jumper. It's fun. Let's pray. Done. The reason I'm doing these sermon reviews is so the folks there in Elk River can understand what's going on at the Crossing Church. Eric Dykstra is a manipulative, manipulative man. And at this point, I I have no problem saying that, you know, 
that what you're dealing with there in Elk River is a man who is a cult leader. The only thing he cares about are more people and more money. And he has absolutely no conscience at all doing what he does when he sits there and manipulates people into an audacious contribution, an audacious sacrificial giving. He manipulates the very gospel of Jesus Christ itself to make it say something it doesn't say, to teach something it doesn't teach, in order to manipulate manipulate people to giving more. He twists God's word and makes it say things it doesn't say. And all you have to do is look at those verses he quoted out of context, put them back into context, and you realize this man is not teaching God's word. He's not teaching what God's word teaches. This is one major money grab. Some of you are going to have to cash in your 401ks, sell houses, cancel your cable subscriptions. Because if you don't, well, the way he told the story, I mean, you might end up in hell. It's not what the Bible teaches. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by our sacrificial giving. We're saved by grace through faith as a gift. This man has no conscience. And what he preaches is not the biblical gospel. He doesn't teach Christ. He doesn't introduce people to Jesus. He introduces people to himself. Show me from that sermon where he really preached Christ. He didn't. He even took the gospel and manipulated it and turned it into, well, Jesus sacrificed, so you have to. That is somebody who has no conscience. That is somebody who does not understand the Bible. That is somebody who's in it for himself, not for the kingdom of God. This man has not heard from God. He did not receive a vision from God. He's a false prophet, a false teacher, and a twister of God's word. And the reality is, is if you believe this false doctrine, this false gospel, not one penny that you give to the crossing church will amount to anything. Because you're not saved by that. You're saved by the shed blood of Christ. He's the one who's done it all for you. He's the one who sacrificed for you, not as an example, but as the real deal. Your sins were propitiated. God's justice was satisfied because of what Jesus did on the cross. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. We truly do need your help. Even though we have far more listeners that listen to this program than attend Elevation Church or even Eric Dykstra's church, well, we still have pretty hefty production expenses and royalty fees and broadcasting fees that we have to pay every month. If you don't already support this important radio outreach, you don't have to sell your house. You don't have to give sacrificially. Some of you do, and I want to thank you for that. But the reality is is that we've given we've created a way for you to support this program even on a nominal level. $6.95 if you join our crew every month. That's it. And it really does truly help us continue to get this important radio outreach to you and to the world. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us so we can keep doing what we're doing.
It's just a matter of paying the bills, keeping the lights on, paying the salary so we can keep doing what we're doing. And I'm not going to tell you some lies about, you know, if you don't do this, then you're not going to go to heaven or anything like that. That's ridiculous. So what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.